for all the important and numerous patient safety initiatives in hospitals and clinics and extended care facilities today. Sometimes it's where the rubber meets the road that's the most telling about progress that's being made with creating a safety culture. For instance, how able are you to speak to a healthcare colleague about an action or behavior on their part that's against some safety protocols and could be jeopardizing patient care? If that's a stumbling block and you're not confident speaking up, no matter how often you're encouraged to do so, you are not alone. At the same time, we know that these one-to-one conversations do matter and organizations are working hard on removing the barriers. For some insights, we're going to peel back the curtain on what's happening at a health system in Toronto, and that's all coming up on this edition of WIHI, and I want to welcome you to WIHI. A reminder, we're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and we come to you live bi-weekly, and after the show, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I also double as IHI's Director of Communications. Now, good systems do form the backbone of safety in any healthcare organization, but as part of a safety culture, so do the individuals who carry out the best practices. They have to be confident and feel a sense of psychological safety, too. So we're going to talk about all of that and more with our panel. But first, here's IHI's John Gothier, and he's going to remind you how to make the most of your time with us today. John. All right, Madge, thanks a lot. Uh, Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of the screen is our chat window, and if you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about all the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants in the Send To bar when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issue, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. A simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Excuse me, Vicky did. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI. Please take the time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Matt. All right. Thanks, John. And we're going to turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. Don't forget, we welcome tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets. If you're only tuned into WIHI by phone and you're not logged in, you're welcome to email info at IHI.org to get hold of all the materials. All right. Joining us by phone, here comes our panel. We've got Joanne Z. She's a senior Senior Clinical Director of the Brain and Spinal Cord Rehab Program at Toronto Rehab, which is part of University Health Network in Toronto. Joanne has more than 25 years of clinical and leadership experience in the field of trauma and neurorehabilitation in both hospital and community settings. Welcome, Joanne. Thanks. All right. You're here. We'll get, you, we'll get your bio slide up there in just a second. All right. 
Joanne is joined by Brenda Kenefick, Director of Lean Process Improvement at the University Health Network. Brenda is responsible for creating and executing lean strategies to help the organization improve the patient experience. And I want to welcome you, Brenda, as well. Thank you, Ms. Madge. It's great to be here. Fantastic. And here in the studio with me, please welcome Greg Meyer to WIHI. Greg is the Chief Clinical Officer of the Partners Healthcare System right here in the Boston area, responsible for overall direction, operations, and management of system aspects of healthcare delivery throughout the Partners Healthcare Delivery System. Greg has quite a background, as you can see on the slide here, including serving previously as the Director of the, uh, of the Center for Quality Improvement and Patient Safety at the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality that we all know as ARC. Glad you're part of the panel, Greg. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. So we're going to get right underway, and you can think of uh, your questions and comments as we go along, but we'll address those things in earnest at about 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So, Brenda, let's start off. Give us a brief, excuse me, brief description of UHN, and then tell us how you and Joanne came to realize that there was some kind of issue with staff remaining silent in the face of witnessing unsafe behaviors. And welcome again. Thanks, Madge. Well, University Health Network is a teaching and research hospital affiliated with University of Toronto. Um, you know, people say Toronto's in the great white north, but I just want to point out that we're at the same latitude as Bordeaux, so it's not as bad as you think. But we're a very multicultural city. We translated into over 90 languages um, last year. We have over 100,000 um, ED visits. We have over 14,000 staff, and we really have three acute care sites and one rehabilitation site. So how did we get into this? It started with uh, myself um, as the lean director sitting in my office and one of my lean coaches coming into the office and saying, I've been shadowing a non-clinical person today on a clinical floor and they never washed their hands. And I said, well, what did you do? And he said, well, I made a really big deal about washing my hands in front of her. I said, did that work? And he said, no, she, she still never washed her hands. And I said, what did you do next? And he said, well, nothing. I'm here talking to you. And I said, did you say something to her? And he said, no, I didn't. And I said, well, why not? And he said, well, I didn't want to damage my relationship with her. And that really got me thinking about, wow, that's um, a very interesting way to look at it. So I started talking to other people. I talked to Joanne about, does that make sense to you? And she said, yeah, I can see that answer. And I talked to another senior director who said, you know, it's funny because in Toronto, walking and texting at the same time is considered a safety hazard. And she said, you know, I've seen some of our executive vice presidents walking and texting. And I talked to several of them, but then I saw one of them walking and texting and I didn't say anything. And I said, well, why didn't you say anything? And she said, you know, not to him. And I pushed a little harder and she said, no, nope, I would never, ever say anything to him. And that got me thinking even more about what's really going on here. So we looked at ARC, and uh, one of the questions that we have is, you know, 49% of people are uncomfortable speaking to people with more authority. Now, I come from manufacturing, so for me, I was like, wow, when I came over to healthcare, one of the things that you know is do no harm. And I thought not speaking up actually has the potential to do harm. So we got into it a bit more. Why is that? So we thought about it. And if you just want to go back one slide, we kind of came up with a bit of a triangle that says, what's the potential level of harm? If I see an act and there's a level of harm, someone's definitely going to get hurt. Okay, I might speak up. And what's the actual level of risk? 
will it actually happen or just might it happen? And how do you get people to think on that continuum about when should I speak up and when should I not speak up? And really it came down you know, to our way of thinking of it's a personal gut check. What is your threshold for speaking up or not speaking up? So the learnings we got into is there's all kinds of things to consider. What's the relationship with a person? What's their perceived power? Is it personal? Like what happened to the last person who who spoke up? Did the their boss or their supervisor have their back or were they on their own? We're going to talk about lots of these in Orlando, but one of the things that really came up too is, well, I wasn't sure if I was absolutely right. And before I spoke up, I wanted to be absolutely right. So we came to the conclusion that people really make these decisions differently. But one thing that remains true is in the moment, someone's going to make a decision. Should they speak or should they not speak? So when we looked at that, we really wanted to get to, we know people want to provide good care. We know people want to provide safe care. So what is it in our culture? What is it in the way we think about things that presents, prevents people from speaking up? And if culture is what we do every day, how do we get in the moment people to change that culture just a little bit by speaking up? So that's kind of the background for how we got to where we are. Okay. Sounds uh, very, very interesting. Um, all right. And I, you know, we've got a, a lot of fun slides and uh, Brenda just referred to the fact that she and Joanne will be in Orlando in just a couple of weeks presenting. So uh, just a early mention that if that uh, intrigues you, you can uh, find out more about our forum on org. All right, Joanne, you um, can pick up uh, the thread here. Uh, I'm, we're going to talk a little bit about some scenarios, and uh, John can show that one uh, that, that's got the uh, options there of, uh, I guess, using a bullhorn, zipping it, or just standing around and thinking about the problem. So tell us a little bit about what you decided to do and how sen- scenarios like these sort of became part of uh, the initiative. Thanks. Okay, great. Thanks, Marge. Yes, the the scenarios we use and the one that's right up on the board are real ones. And we were mindful when we chose these to really reflect on, you know, what is our own tolerance for speaking out and what factors influence our comfort. Uh, Power differentials definitely um, play a factor, and it includes when people perceive um, someone has more experience than them, um, power over learners, so that student-teacher relationship, um, even colleagues. You know, when we spoke to our nurses, that that pressure of when I come in the next day, am I going to get get the help I need to do the work that I can, the best I can? So it really helps us reveal the inner dialogue that happens and what, how quickly that happens to help us make a decision whether or not to speak. So that's the bullhorn, whether to zip it, not say anything, or maybe to contemplate and approach it at a later time, but not in the real moment. So the questions that come into mind is really what happened the last time I spoke up or what happened to the guy that spoke up last? So our first attempt at improving our safety culture was holding executive walkabouts. And at the same time, I was actually pursuing my master's at U of T through IHPME under Ross Baker and Keve Shajanya. And, you know, I learned a lot about, you know, how different strategies can impact safety culture. But what I heard when I was doing my safety walkabouts were staff just raised very surface issues around, you know, broken equipment. Um, even though we were asking questions, it wasn't enough to get people to talk. 
So later on as an organization, we actually implemented a daily safety huddle, and it was sponsored by our senior vice president. So it really took, you know, from the top level, and with Brenda's leadership, we created a standard. Our standard process was three easy steps. One was set an expectation that safety is everyone's responsibility. Everyone is to speak up. And that thanks is the only response you should expect to get when you raise an issue. And that the third is whenever you speak up, action will be taken. And so we place that expectation on every staff, learner, volunteer, and they would participate in a daily huddle before 9.15 every morning. And the manager would then report to a director level, and that would be me in my portfolio, any incidences or concerns. And I would escalate any issues to at my VP huddle. The managers were expected then to run the huddle, and they were trained to say thank you. And it wasn't easy at first. The managers were hesitant to put this expectation on staff. Staff pushed back, um, saying that the morning was too busy a time. So let's just, you know, be honest, it wasn't easy. And now everyone comes automatically and actually looks forward to it. There are sometimes still frustrations from managers or leaders about, you know, staff not following a policy or process. And this is work ahead of us. We know that staff don't come into work wanting to do a bad job. Neither do leaders or managers. But sometimes things get in the way, and our systems are complex. And with all the many steps that we take to do something uh, with a patient or for a patient, we need to tease that apart and start to simplify work rather than looking at punitive solutions. And that's what we heard from ARC as well, that our staff felt that, you know, when they brought things up, they were afraid that, you know, they would be held responsible from a punitive um, perspective. Um, what I found was since we started the huddles is it created a sense of team, enhanced team communication and group problem solving. What I hear now is very different. The nurses feel that the allied health are more integrated as part of the team. They are supported in problem solving, uh, safety concerns that might reveal, um, you know, only at night when the other staff aren't around. Our housekeepers are aware of frequent fallers and patients with potential behavioral outbursts um, are identified and they can help prevent incidences. Our facilities team act really quickly on broken equipment or other hazards because they know of the impact that it can have on safety. Um, our VP of nursing did a recent walkabout and what she heard from the frontline nurses was that the huddle is the best single thing that has enhanced the workplace environment um, over the years. So on the other side, realistically, managers are struggling with the overwhelming number of things to fix and having the time to fix them the right way. So we still have to work on our problem-solving capacity. And, you know, every time a concern is raised and if it's not acted on, it is, does take us a step back. And we use one strategy to combat this problem by keeping score, where managers report back the status and ensure that there's an owner. And, I, and they bring issues to me so I can bring resources where it's needed. So far, this new process, we found decreased staff manager reluctance to speak, um, a use of untapped knowledge that we didn't know before, and staff do want to speak up, um, even though we were asking, we weren't getting the right answers. So nowadays, in my daily safety huddles, I get anywhere between 3 to 13 safety concerns a day. Previously, I would expect maybe two or three a week. Uh, and locally, most of the problems can be solved in a timely way. But when I share them at my VP huddle, um, the learnings really can be spread, and that's one of the, the bonuses. Now in safety walkabouts, I don't just get the equipment issues. Clinicians take me by hand and they actually bring me to show me what the issues are that are getting in the way of their job. And 
to be real, we still have lots of work to do. Speaking up is getting better, but we're not there yet. 100% of people are not speaking up at the time when something happens at the moment. They're still waiting for the huddle, and that's not the goal. So we don't always get a thank you as well when someone speaks up in the moment. That doesn't always happen. So that's why the reasons are so helpful. It helps highlight what stops us from speaking up and surfaces it. Um, and we've only begun our gen- journey right now, and it'll take effort, but I'm confident that we can get there. Wow, fantastic. Lots of questions, I'm sure. I, I have some, and I'm sure our audience does as well. There is another slide, maybe John can show that, that does have a lot of your results up there. I think what we're going to do is we're going to circle back with that in just a second, and we're going to now turn to uh, Greg Meyer. Um, and I have two questions for Greg. How important is it for healthcare to be focusing on helping everyone speak up? Maybe that sounds like a rather rhetorical question. Uh, we know it's important, but how important? And because uh, here we've just heard that the safety huddle, maybe maybe that substitutes. Maybe it's too hard uh, to do this one-on-one, too risky. And, um, and, you know, and so I guess it's kind of weighing that, you know, is it really important that we, um, you know, have this way to have this kind of one-on-one conversation uh, conversation, which some people probably worry could be a confrontation. Go ahead, Greg. Great. So maybe I can move to the first slide that I, I'd like to share with the audience. I think the first question um, is actually the second one that you asked, and that is, why is this so hard? Why is it so difficult? And I do think that, you know, that Machiavelli said it well, is that what we're asking people to do is we're asking them to change. I mean, change in healthcare as in anywhere else is difficult. Machiavelli said it must be remembered. There's nothing more difficult to plan, more doubtful to success, nor more dangerous to manage than a new system. For the initiator has the enmity of all who would profit by the preservation of the old institution and merely lukewarm defenders and those who gain by the new ones. And so, you know, why is this hard? It's hard because folks grow up in a system and they learn by observing others. And there's a certain way that we're all expected to behave. And, and this changes all of that. To move over to the, move to mm-hmm. the next slide here. You know, I think when we think about you know, well, how do we actually deal with this? I, I, you know, this is a bit of an homage to my my friends up north who I'm sharing the program with today. Um, I'm a hockey player. I love this uh, picture. It basically, you know, it shows the limitations of policies and rules. And so you can have this terrific policy and, and you say, you know, everyone should speak up. And our rule is, is that we're always going to share this information. And, and by and large, you know, it's going to be about as useful as the sign on the wall, the rink here, um, that, you know, don't shoot the pucks off the walls. Um, you need to go beyond that. And, and if you move on to the, to the next slide, you know, the first thing to do when you're going beyond that is to recognize that your context matters, that culture really is a local phenomenon. This was a slide. It's a very old cartoon. It was given to me by Ed Schein, from, uh, formerly from the Sloan School at MIT, who really has written the book on organizational behavior and, and, and speaking up and, and managing that in a complex organization. And the notion here is, is that, you know, for, for little Jack Horner, you know, sitting in a corner makes great sense. But for, you know, for this child in his circular house, a corner has no meaning. One of the things that we often struggle with is, is that we're not realizing that maybe the, what we're asking people to do has no meaning to them because they would never think of, of speaking up. On the next slide, you know, you could see, I think, what are some of the fallacies of, uh, of why it's so hard. And, and one of them is, is that notion of, you know, if only 
I had the bigger job, if only I had more authority, that then I'd be really comfortable in speaking. Like someday I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to be large and in charge, and I'm going to be comfortable in speaking up to everyone. And the truth of the matter is, is that whether we're working on change in a little microsystem, you know, in our office, interacting with uh, with our colleagues, or we're working running a huge healthcare system, which is one of the privileges I help to uh, I help to share. Um, the truth of the matter is, is is the challenges are the same. You don't need to wait. The second fallacy is, is the notion that, well, you know, what we could do is we could actually just collect data on it. Rather than speak up to our colleagues about their hand hygiene practices, let's just show them the data. And, and again, the truth here is that, you know, that, that data can often bog you down. Um, that what we need is we need to be comfortable in speaking up um, because no important decisions made with sufficient information. And we just need to get comfortable with that. The third fallacy is that it's all up to an individual, that, you know, it's up to me to do it. You know, and the, here one of the most important things we can do, and again, another great lesson from Ed Shine. You can see a, a reference to his book, Helping, on the cover here. We'll make sure that that goes out to the audience. Um, one of the most humbling things that you can do as a leader is to ask for help. And when you ask, you know, please let me know what you're seeing on the front line. I need your help. Those words are so powerful um, and can break down a lot of the barriers. You know, the, the next fallacy is that, you know, boy, if only I'd studied this more, I'd be so good. And, you know, we're all qualified to speak up, whether or not we're sweeping the floor or we're with a family member or we're, you know, the administrator in charge of a big facility. We're all qualified to do it and we shouldn't wait. Um, you know, and the final thing is, is some people think no one is noticing. And the truth is, is that People are watching constantly, and the behavior that they will adopt is the behavior that they see. And so to the earlier comment about how important it is to say thank you, I can't agree more. And the truth is, is that they need to see that coming from everybody up and down the entire organization. When you see a high-functioning organization, you're going to hear everyone is going to say Thank you. Thank you. And they're genuine. I had an experience earlier this week of, uh, of interacting with a head nurse on a very, very busy floor. Um, and she came into a room and she asked the patient, she said, you know, how are things going? And she said, well, tell me what we can do better. And the patient said, well, no, you're doing great. This is really wonderful. I'm so grateful. Tell me what you can do better. And then the third time she said, I need your help to make this place better. Tell me what you do. And the patient then spoke up and said, you know, some of the people that have come into my room, they haven't been perfect about hand hygiene. You were. And, you know, these other – but they were. it took that third question, but everybody watches. And I know that all the nursing staff on our floor and the physicians who are in and out of that, that ward, that they notice that. Right? So people are watching. So, so those are – you know, we got to get beyond the fallacies and get really comfortable. It's so ironic to me. To walk onto, you know, a subway uh, anywhere in the world, and it can be in, it can be in North America, it can be in Europe, um, it can be in Asia, and you'll see signs, and the signs all essentially say the same thing. They all say, "See something, say something." Right? If you are concerned, speak up. You're part of making everybody safer. We need to get there in healthcare. We need to catch up. To what extent do you feel that leaders um, are sort of picking up a baton and sort of demonstrating uh, all, all of this? And uh, what what's the role there? Yeah. Well, you know, I think in answer to the first part, you know, to what extent are they not enough, right? We wouldn't be having this conversation here today if this was something that we had solved years ago. Um, the truth of the matter is, is that I do think we're getting better at it. Um, and, you know, again, it is – 
that modeling of behaviors, it's showing people. And I do want to get back to that whole notion of asking for help because when we think about the barriers between various members of the healthcare team, everything from a family member to a patient to the person coming in and providing a food tray to to, to the all-powerful surgeon or physician and uh, and the administrator of the organization, the reality is is, is that those hierarchies form extraordinary barriers. And when folks can see leaders breaking down those barriers and asking for help, you know, that humble inquiry that Ed Shine talks about is such a powerful tool. And so as we're starting to see more folks ask about that, that's great. And by the way, you know, it's not impossible. We've seen other, we've seen other industries do this. Boy, nuclear energy, they're pretty good at it. We all could be better. Aviation, they're pretty good at it too. We all could be better. Healthcare, we're lagging behind, but we're catching up. All right, I'm going to ask um, Greg an- another question here because it turns out we're going to have to let him go. Uh, he apologizes, but we've gotten some of him today. Uh, this is what what happens when you have a physician on the program. Sometimes things come up, but I'm so glad, and Greg was so involved in helping to shape the show. Somebody has asked about the fact that you were in the Air Force, so uh, your background, and of course, SBAR uh, came right out of Navy and uh, submarine, uh, you know, um, uh, part of, of the Navy uh, fleet. And uh, it was also very designed to help not only speak uh, succinctly and get somebody's attention, but to speak up a chain of command and sort of across authority. And I'm wondering, is is SBAR a part of this issue of speaking up right now, or is it something else much more psychological? No, I, I think it's a huge part of it. And first yeah. of all, I'm delighted that someone asked that question and noticed that in my background. I have to say that my interest in, in safety and quality really dates back to officers training school in the Air Force. And I feel so privileged to have learned in that environment. One of the things that you learn right away is that at the end of the day, that we're all responsible for each other's safety. And one of the tenets of that is that we're all comfortable speaking up. And I think that, you know, like many other folks in the Air Force, I can think of a particular time when a junior airman sitting in the back of an aircraft that was about to take off, that I was on board, spoke up about something, we aborted a takeoff. Um, that could, that changed potentially the history of my life or the end of my life at that time. And, and the reality is, is that it's drilled into you that this is part of being safe. This is keeping yourself safe, keeping your colleagues safe. The tools that we use, um, you know, there are many. And, and so whether or not you use SBAR or you use I'm safe or you use any of the other acronyms, the key is, is that you use them and the underlying pieces Here's a way that we can communicate and we can feel safely about it because at the end of the, the discussion, no matter what that phone call is to me late at night with the SBAR, again, the first words out of my mouth, as you heard earlier, are so important. Thank you for calling me. All right. Thank you very much. All right, Dr. Greg Meyer, thanks so much. And I'm so glad you could participate. And we're going to keep going here with Brenda and Joanne. And I'm going to go back, John, if you would, uh, to the slide that had a lot more about results. I just want to make sure we got to some of that because, of course, we're talking about quality improvement and measuring things. Uh, Brenda or Joanne, who wants to speak to this a little bit more? I know that Joanne started to talk about sort of where things have landed uh, in general, but are there some interesting facets to some of your results that you might want to point out? Hi, it's Brenda. I, I would like to point out um, 
some things. And I just, you know, I know Greg had to leave us, which is unfortunate, but I, I would just kind of like to second his um, comment about, you know, this is difficult because we're asking people to change. The other way to think about that is a little bit is we're asking people to go back to how they used to be as a child, right? So we socialized curiosity out. We socialized all those other things out of people so that we become much more politically correct and less willing to speak up. And so as we've gone through this process, one of the things that we repeat, and it's on every wall by every safety huddle, is small things matter. And you hear sometimes the nursing managers say, you know, let's just remind you that small things matter. Because one of the things that, you know, I think sometimes happen is people see small things and they go, it's a small thing. And then something very big comes up and it's much harder to talk. So what you, what you see here, these results are, um, you know, in August, we didn't have very many. And we changed to a new format that basically said um, each Unit's going to huddle, then they're going to huddle with their clinical director, then they're going to huddle with the VP um, as the levels go up, and the numbers jumped tremendously. And some of the stuff comes up, a lot of it is little stuff, like, you know, the commode's broken or whatever kind of thing it is, but what really works is it gets actioned. And as things get actioned, more and more things come up. And, and um, what we've seen is, you know, we talk about everyone every day, I was on a unit this morning at a safety huddle, and we actually had guests, and I said to the guests, you know, actually, you can't have your coffee here, because in clinical areas, uh, we're not allowed to have coffee. And uh, the guests kind of went, oh, and, and threw out the coffee. And one of the nurses on the unit came up to me and said, thank you so much, because that is one of our rules, and we want everybody to respect it. So, I mean, they thanked me, which was nice, but the results on the units have really been interesting. And the, the quality of the conversations that's coming up have gone deeper and deeper. Like peeling an onion, new things come up every day. Okay. So we've still clearly got some work to do on these sort of one-on-ones. I can hear in your story, Brenda, uh, that somebody was so relieved that you brought it up. Um, and, uh, you know, that still speaks to the ways in which we feel some people have more authority uh, than others to say something. And we all kind of fear consequences if we're somehow perceived as not the legitimate person uh, who can ask. Joanne, is there anything you want to add uh, in terms of results? I, I know you spoke to some of this, but I just want to make sure. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, just referring to the slide, I think one of the key things that I mentioned was initially there was a bit of pushback when we were implementing daily huddles from staff about, you know, worrying that it would get in the way of the busiest time um, of morning care. And when we made it visual to say, you know, our expectation is that these huddles would take no more than 10 minutes, and we stuck to it. And it was really helpful to look at, you know, and they're getting more and more efficient. And keeping score, the other thing about the consistency piece is every time that there is a concern raised, it's so important for us to track who's responsible for it, when they're going to get back to it, if there needs to be additional resources, you know, who's going to own that and report back to the team. Because what will set us back is that lack of consistency. As Greg mentioned, you know, everyone is watching. So every time that there is an issue raised and it gets perhaps unintendedly swept under um, a carpet or forgotten, then it may impact whether or not the staff member will speak up again. So it's really important. So when you kind of look at uh, the numbers going up, it, it's effort, it's work to maintain consistency. 
uh, across the board. And I think the good catch is that small things matter. Um, just recently, I had a uh, we had an, a couple of small incidences that were actually never brought up at our at our um, huddle around you know a medication that had run out and it was difficult to get it. And uh, I had an incident where it actually became a critical incident when a patient was intubated because of a lack of. Uh, um, you know, a specific medication being available in a timely way. But two other smaller occurrences have happened, but the staff had never thought it was big enough to bring up. And so we actually could have learned from that. So we still have work to go around what's important to bring up and making sure we share it because there could be learnings to prevent the bigger thing. From happening. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Joanne and Brenda. And I also um, want to encourage people, we're about to turn to chat, and I please get your comments and questions in there. We're curious, how's it in your organization? How much speaking up happens? Uh, what's the role of the safety huddle? Is it somehow uh, operating in a fashion in your organization that it may be giving people just more confidence overall to have these one-on-one conversations? And I just want to point out, we only showed that one uh, scenario slide, but one of the cool things that Brenda and Joanne have is they've got a lot of scenarios uh, that they ask uh, folks when they're doing trainings to kind of think through together. There is a new physiotherapist in an inpatient unit. When a bed alarm sounds, they do not react. Uh, here's another one. A patient is ready for discharge and the ward clerk leaves their chart on a table where other people can view it. And of course, the uh, one that we hear about quite a bit still, unfortunately, it has to do with uh, hand hygiene. And so I invite any of you who are tuned in today uh, to share where you think you are in your safety culture and your organization with people's confidence and psychological safety uh, to actually uh, have some of those one-on-one mentions and as Greg was saying and get a thank you uh, he said that pretty clearly that's what you should be hearing when you're saying some of these things all right John a uh, quick reminder to everybody to how to take part in the chat yeah if you're uh, hoping to ask some questions of the guests or participants uh, please make sure that you ask your questions in the send to bar down in the right hand corner of the chat take a look it says send to and then make sure it's switched to all participants Okay, very good. All right, Brenda or Joanne, I'll let you too. Since I know you're in the same room on different phones, you can maybe point to one or the other. People are asking a little bit more about leadership, uh, which is kind of what, uh, well, somebody wrote, what recommendations do you have for confronting senior members with concerns about their own practices or lack thereof? Um, anyone want to speak to that for starters? Brenda or Joanne? Sure. This is Joanne. I think, I mean, that's a really terrific question. And I think it goes back to what Greg was saying is, you know, having a culture where um, giving feedback is received as an opportunity for improvement. And it encourages us to be curious. Um, When everyone comes from a place of wanting to improve, that's when it, it comes across as you know, feedback for improvement rather than a criticism. And I think that's where everyone has to come back. And, you know, there's lots of courses around crucial conversations, right? How to tackle 
um, you know, how to tackle, you know, something that you've seen and what is the impact and being a bit tentative uh, about addressing, you know, something that you've witnessed so that it's a very safe place to give feedback to perhaps a senior member. But again, it starts with our senior members are getting trained as well around how to say thank you. And I think that's, that's really important. Okay. So maybe Brenda has more to add. Okay. So you're actually running trainings uh, or having workshops with senior members? Uh, yes. Brenda? Brenda, if I can just jump in. I mean, I love that question because one of the things, I come from manufacturing. I think it's much easier to speak to someone more senior than it is someone more junior. And, and, I think part of the reason is it's because my expectation of them is they need to model the behavior that we want everyone to have. And um, it doesn't always work, of course. And sometimes um, it doesn't work as well as you want it to. But it's one of those things of is we're really committed to trying to get a safety culture and improve safety. If you speak to someone and it doesn't go well, I mean, that's a time to reflect and maybe go and think about how can I speak to them again about how that conversation went. I don't actually think it's career limiting to do that as long as you're always doing it from a place of let's learn about this rather than making it a punitive conversation. Okay, very good. What about uh, sustainability? Somebody's curious um, about the sustainability of the kind of work that you're doing at UHN. Um, do staff own it? Uh, do they depend a lot on leaders like the two of you? Well, you know what? Um it's a great question because staff own it. They depend on leadership. I really think it depends on focus and alignment. So as long as people are doing safety huddles every day, talking about safety, um, as uh, Joanne alluded to, actioning the things that come up to make sure that they get addressed, that's a lot of work. But I think if we you know, turn around and say, okay, we've had enough of safety, let's go work on something else, we've got a problem, right? So it's as an organization, can we – just stay focused on this is what we want to work on and keep talking about it every day. Okay, thank you very much. Go ahead, Joanne. Sorry. Go ahead, please. Um, uh, maybe just an example as well. I, I think when we started the huddles, one of the things that we really thought was important was to create a rhythm, and we made it, you know, mandatory that managers lead these huddles for a lengthy period of time. But as it became a rhythm and the staff really bought into it, leadership is not about it's only the manager. It, everyone has leadership potential and people took on, you know, when the manager was away that, you know, they would step up and, and, and take that and take that reign. So absolutely sustainability is an important thing and we build leadership in everybody. Okay. Thank you both. Lots of great questions. People are also sharing some of the things that they're doing in their own organizations, uh, certain kinds of leader champions who obviously set examples. Um, the, uh, and people are asking about uh, particular strategies here. Um, the, there's also a couple of different questions about middle managers uh, in terms of what role they can play. Uh, you know, people who feel maybe that, that somehow they kind of get lost in between. Any thoughts on that, either Brenda or uh, Joanne? Brenda, we'll start with you. You know, uh, I have this theory called the squish theory. Which is basically middle managers are between the front line and the executives, and they're in the worst place possible. 
Um, I think it's extremely hard for them because they get all the complaints from above and they get all the, the priorities from below. But I think, you know, the same principle applies is how do we say thank you? How do we say thank you to the manager who, you know, walks into your office and says, I don't know how to fix this, but my staff keeps complaining about it because now we have an opportunity to fix it. But I think, and I'll, I mean, to be honest, when we started the huddles with the managers and the CDs, there was some resistance um, here at UHN because, first of all, the managers said, I don't want to tell my clinical director all the problems that I'm having. It's not that they're trying to hide us, but like as a manager, I should deal with it. I should be able to deal with it. And the clinical directors kind of said, but that's the manager's role. And it's not about... Um, people can't do something. It's about, do we really have situational awareness of all the things that are going on? And maybe someone else has already solved this problem and we can learn from each other. So it's really, how do you create that learning organization that talking about problems isn't a bad thing, but it's a great opportunity for everybody to learn from each other and maybe solve problems faster in the future. Okay, thanks a lot. Elizabeth, who's on the call, has identified herself as a squish. And so (laughs) she liked your term, Brenda. So maybe, Elizabeth, you can tell us how you're uh, managing some of these issues as a middle manager. You might be able to offer some insights uh, to others. There's a question in here about uh, how to extend all of this. Of course, Greg gave that great example of on the third Third try, uh, a patient finally said something about noticing that a clinician had not washed, I uh, can't remember now if that was his or her hands, uh, or that maybe a lot of people hadn't and uh, this would, did not go unnoticed by the patient, but clearly that person was not sure whether to bring it up. Is there any work that you're doing? Are you working with any patient advisory groups? Uh, somebody wants to know. Um, it's Joanne. I can definitely speak about that. We actually have a, a very um, robust process around patient partners, and we recruit patient partners um, in our care, and they're recruited and trained. And the staff in all our improvement initiatives, our aim is to always have a patient partner and the patient voice as part of our improvement efforts. Um, they're actually um, paid to be on our working group um, as well as um, you know, equal decision makers in 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 our work efforts for improvement. So okay. it's really really important. Okay, thanks. I know we had said that you know there's a lot of different kinds of techniques for speaking to somebody and pointing something out. We are getting some questions. People are wondering. So how do you speak to a coworker or maybe you, uh, a nurse, or somewhere else on the chain of command, even if part of a team too, notice a clinician has not washed his or her hands? Do you have any suggestions at all about what kinds of comments, uh, how that gets raised, and anything uh, either of you uh, can offer there. That's a really, I mean, it's a great way of thinking about what organizations you want to work in. And so I think part of it is deciding earlier on, do I want to speak up or do I not want to speak up? And and, um, there's a great example about a flight that was leaving, true story, from Scotland to Canada, and... um, the flight attendants actually called the police because they believed that the pilots had been drinking. And uh, the, the pilots were arresting, and, and I don't know the rest of the story, what actually happened, but but that was, they were at personal risk. And so it, they took action. But if you see, you know, a doctor or someone not wash their hands, 
maybe something will happen, maybe something won't. But I think what you have to think about is, is there, first of all, a standard? So would you expect at that moment to see that person wash their hands? If there's no clear standard, it's really hard to speak up. The second thing is, um, if there is a clear standard, if you're consistent in what you do, and Greg said it, consistency really does matter. If you're consistent in what you do and you say to someone, hey, you know, I, you must have forgotten to wash your hands there, it's maybe not about the person, but it's about the process. Maybe we should move that sanitizer because it's not in a good spot. What do you think of that? So there's no easy way, and it's very much a comfort level, but is there some sort of way that you can take it away from I'm confronting that person and talk more about isn't the process that we're supposed to follow something like this, or is this the way the process should be done, and turn it into a learning moment rather than a um, accusatory moment. Well, thank you. And I love all the contributions being made to this. Uh, somebody is <laughs> the snap approach. Uh, everyone knows the Adams family. Um, I'm going to refrain from doing it because we all know da-da-da-da. Da, 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 da. Anyway, every time somebody does not wash their hands, this is what happens. And this person is saying the video, there's a video that plays in a hospital, and it actually has the Adams Family theme song. Well, that may not be, I guess, a one-on-one conversation, but it certainly would get your attention. Somebody else is saying this is a difficult conversation for me to have, uh, might be a good way to start. Another is saying that uh, perhaps starting it with a question uh, is can I get you a mask, for example, if somebody has uh, forgotten to do so? Uh, there is a rolled out something called cuss here. I am concerned. I am uncomfortable. This is a safety issue. It is from the Canadian Patient Safety Institute, PSEP program. Well, that sounds very interesting. The SNAP approach, I think, is one that we might all remember uh, fr- from the program. Uh, so I think these these are all kind of techniques, I guess, the bottom line is we all feel that these things uh, really matter. I have a a question uh, that I hope is also people would feel would be relevant as well. Um, Have you learned, Joanne and uh, Brenda, whether there are certain parts of the system, certain uh, roles uh, that people are in that maybe make some of these folks the most resistant and defensive? And I'm not trying to so much point fingers but kind of own awareness in a way of of those who might be some present some of the most challenges and maybe need some very targeted strategies. Any thoughts? Well, the obvious answer is doctors. Um, you know what? It's it's very interesting because everyone it's doctors are the hardest and and that sort of thing. And you know, in my experience, in some ways, that's true. But I also recognize that um, they're funded differently, their, their leadership structure is different. It's really hard to make it um, easy for people to do the right thing all the time. And, and they're not always available for the meetings. They're not always available to get involved in stuff. So for me, that's not an excuse. But I think we have to kind of maybe think about how do we make it so it's easier for everyone to speak up? And and I have been in a situation where, you know, staff have been very frustrated. Something was not. And I said, did anyone tell the doctor? And they said, well, no, we haven't. And uh, we went and got the doctor, told the doctor, the doctor walked in the patient's room, and the situation was resolved. Um, so, you know, doctors do have that power. And uh, I think we have to respect that, but we also have to respect that 
Um, we have to make systems fairly easy for people to get involved. And I'm going to go back to, is there a standard way of doing stuff that makes it easy for them? So you always hear what's in it for me. I think it's important. Um, but I would also say I am really impressed with um, people from housekeeping, people from portering, um, those those folks, because they're generally a little bit more willing to speak up when you give them a venue and you give them a process to do it. And uh, we've slowly got some um, doctor engagement and they've started their own huddles. So it's coming along. But um, at the end of the day, I just kind of want to say if it's, I'm closer to being a patient than a healthcare worker. If it's myself or a family member or whatnot, I want people to speak up. And I think staff want to speak up. So it's how do we just make it a little bit easier? Okay. I know. Um, Joanne. Go ahead, Joanne. Uh-huh. Um, I just think from my experience as well, just uh, being in the master's program at UFT, I really heard a lot from our physician, my physician colleagues around, um, even physician to physician, um, you know, uh, tension um, around, you know, safety and being able to have a safe environment to speak up. And I think now in physician training, especially at the University of Toronto, we've seen is it's early on in the curriculum and that we're actually training our health professionals in an interprofessional way so that they actually have clinical placements together as physicians, physios, nursing, you know, speech pathologists. And it's made a real difference in terms of being able to create that sense of teamwork and I would say interdependency and that curiosity that they work together. So I think that's also um, starting to make a difference as well. Thank you very much. And somebody named Kimberly uh, in the chat, uh, that's a very long <laughs> URL for a slide deck, but maybe we can sort it out. Uh, Kimberly, you're welcome to also maybe email uh, the deck just in case people can't get to it, but maybe it works uh, fine. I love, I want to just rattle off a few more ideas that are coming here. We've engaged physicians by having them star in our videos regarding hand hygiene. Somebody is talking about a way that uh, uh, somebody turns over their own uh, ID card uh, uh, on their, uh, you know, something they're wearing and it sort of flips it to the other side where it may have a particular color that uh, draws your attention to something uh, not having uh, been accomplished, perhaps washing your hands or something else like that. Uh, somebody else is referring to Dr. Waters. Uh, I don't know if that's meaning uh, that maybe somebody could explain exactly how that works. Uh, I don't know if that means uh, paging somebody or uh, just making that reference. So, um I guess, uh, you know, I think th what we're hearing here is that there are a lot of uh, creative ways, uh, to go about this, that there, and there are more issues than hand hygiene. And, um, I think partly what we're trying to do is sort of get people pretty activated and engaged, uh, in these kinds of conversations. I guess what I want to do now, um, but, Feel free, everyone, if you've got more ideas and more questions. What happens next? Uh, Brenda and Joanne, I, as I mentioned to you, will be at the National Forum. Um, I think you've got your scenarios, a lot more that I think pe you're going to take people through and I think kind of have folks kind of walk around in these familiar situations. But where would you say the program goes next um, uh, up there in Toronto? 
Well, it's a great question. I mean, we're we're working very hard on changing our safety culture, and we've uh, launched something called Caring Safely, and they're doing a great job in getting things going um, in the right direction. Um, I really think, you know, we're not going anywhere next. We're still really focused on getting the basics right, and I think we're going to be on that for another, you know, months or a couple of years, um, just peeling back the layers of the onion. Because the more we can get people to talk in huddles, the more we can get people comfortable with what's the right process for doing this. I really have so much faith in healthcare people. I mean, they're highly educated. They care passionately about the patients. I think they're going to show us the next step forward. They're going to show us here's where the next great opportunity is, and hopefully we can um, go with them on that journey. Okay. Uh, Joanne, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I echo um, Brenda in terms of we're just starting on our journey around improving um, our safety culture and speaking up is the first step. But I think, you know, what we talked about with an example of hand hygiene, it's how do we keep that up? And I think healthcare traditionally has been very good at layering, you know, new processes and policies on without simplifying. And I think, um, my colleagues at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto did, did a study around, you know, if nurses did hand hygiene, the four, you know, moments of hand hygiene every moment, you know, six hours out of, I think they're eight hours and, you know, I could be completely wrong with these statistics, but a significant amount of time would be spent on hand hygiene. So really is the solution to ensure that the nurses are doing four moments of hand hygiene or should we really be problem solving around simplifying processes? So building the problem solving capacity so that we really get to the right root causes of the problems will help us as well um, with people being able to speak up and create that safety culture that's actually sustainable. Thank you. I just just have to say, you know, small things matter, and let's keep simple things simple. So I want to ask you, two people now have asked whether it's uh, easier to do these things in Canada than the United States, and somebody put it a different way. Is it easier for Canadians to speak of (laughs) than those of us south of your border? And Any thoughts on that? Well, it's very much easier for Canadians to say sorry because we say it all the time. Um, but you know what? I've, I've actually done lean work in Europe, in the UK, in South Africa, in Australia, and in New Zealand. And, you know, people are different, but people are the same. I think if you find the process that works for you in, in your culture, wherever you're starting from, right? Some, some people are farther along, some people are farther behind. Wherever you're starting from, just get started and see what kind of comes up and then go to work and solve that problem and move on to the next. But, uh, yeah, it's really interesting with, you know, different cultures around the world. People have different takes on stuff, but people still care about safe patient care. Well, thank you very much. I want a, a big shout out to Brenda Kenefick and Joanne Z and also Dr. Greg Meyer, who was here with us the first half. And I want to say in this month, uh, on November 3rd, we talked about systems of safety, uh, with Alan Frankel and Carol Harridan. And if you want to catch up on two really strong safety programs, uh, check out that one in our archive from November 3rd and also this one. And somebody did ask earlier in the chat, uh, whether the program 
program was recorded, they're all recorded and are available the next day on our website and also via iTunes for download. So I want to thank you both. Uh, we um, know we have a lot of folks who do tune in from Canada, and we're thrilled to uh, feature some organizations and work from Canada, and we hope to do more of that. So feel free to suggest ideas to us. Next up on WIHI on December 1st, we're going to be talking about measures that matter. Uh, we have a new publication that's coming out called Whole Systems Measure, uh, Whole System Measures, I should say, 2.0, and I think people are going to find that quite interesting in terms of what it encompasses, so I hope you'll tune in. That's on December 1st at 2 p.m. A reminder that you can download the chat. This chat has so many good ideas in it. I really hope people will uh, download it before they get off. You can also download any slides we use from our discussion today, so look for that option. There's also a survey. We really invite you to fill that out. All those items are also posted to our website tomorrow. And uh, we uh, really appreciate everybody's uh, interest. And if you like what you hear, let us know. Uh, when you uh, download the podcast from iTunes, for example, um, we hope you'll tell people about it. You can subscribe to the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And if you like what you hear, you can write a review. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org. Feel free to suggest additional topics. So there are a great group that helped make WIHI possible. I like to thank them all the time. John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth Janes, and Haley Ladd. And as I like to say, it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited pro- learning and improving health and patient care, most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, you've been a great audience, so engaged. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.